Hello, my name is Omar Abosh, and I'm the Corporate Vice President of Industry Solutions at Microsoft. And I am Will I Am, entrepreneur, philanthropist, musician, and producer, and my mother's son, and this is Changemakers. There are a lot of people around the world driving change that impacts society. In this series, we'll share stories of transformation directly from the leaders themselves who made the change. We'll talk about their obstacles, their triumphs, their learnings, and how technology has accelerated their mission. Hey, Will. Hey, Omar. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to see you again. You too. Listen, I was thinking, have you seen this movie on Netflix, Don't Look Up? Yes. What do you think? I liked it a lot. It was there's some some pieces that I didn't really didn't really gel with me. Um, that was the Jonah Hill character. Thought he was a little bit too overboard. Um, but I liked how they they've they've taken serious issues about governance, um, responsibility, accountability. Um, and they and they did it in a, in a very slapstick way by poking fun of how leadership is leading at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I actually love the movie, but it disturbed me completely at the same time. The, uh, I mean, I'm wary of spoilers here, but for those people who love Meryl Streep, they'll probably like her a bit less, at least of this character. Yes, yes. Um, but but the um, the way they rammed home this point of how we trivialize everything mm-hmm. as a society and we don't take things seriously when actually sometimes you've got to take them seriously, that really came through for me as a big thing. Today's change topic is linked to climate, a giant, important, massive topic for everyone on the entire planet today. What began some decades ago, essentially with a group of scientists, activist groups, and maybe a couple of sympathetic politicians, has actually become a mainstream movement covering every continent, every industry, and every generation. Companies today are discovering that sustainability is actually a viable business model, not just something that you do to try and do the right thing. Enter Alistair Phillips-Davis, CEO of British energy giant SSE. Alistair is a real change maker, leading a traditional fossil fuel-based energy company through its transformation to become a true renewable energy company. Alistair and SSE believe that wind can eventually replace fossil fuels as the primary source of energy and profits, and they believe that it can happen sooner rather than later. In fact, SSE is building Dogger Bank, the world's largest offshore wind farm, and this thing is massive, located off the northeast coast of England. I've had the honor of knowing Alistair for years and have watched with admiration as he's put in an amazing traditional company of the Industrial Revolution on course, shifting towards a brighter, cleaner future. We're pleased to have Alistair join us today. Alistair, welcome to Changemakers. It's so good to see you again. Thanks. Lovely to see you and great to meet Will as well. Wow. <clears throat> it's awesome to be uh, rocking next to you. Thank you for all the stuff that you, you and the company are doing. So, yeah, it's strange. I've seen you a lot more on TV and uh, yeah, I, I suspect m- many millions have enjoyed what you do more than uh, more than what I do. But hopefully we keep the uh, power flowing so everybody can watch it and see it and <laughs> exactly. listen, listen to it on their mobile phones and everything else. Yeah. Without the power flowing, I don't think we could watch much. No. Um, so, Alistair, SSE, I mean, in the whole time that I've known you and the company, and as I'm talking about 20, 25 years, you've been smart always with, with clever shifts of moving from one underlying power generation technology to the next, whether it's coal, natural gas, 
and now wind. And you've always been thoughtful about your timings and when you move. So why is wind the right bet now? I think we've been in wind for a while. Uh, I think it's just really blossoming now. If you if you go back at, at the end of the noughties, back in 2008, we, we, we did a big acquisition for us uh, in the wind sector because we felt renewables were coming and maybe we were a little bit early at that time. But we built what was at the time going to be the world's biggest offshore wind farm at Greater Gabbard. That, that was our first big offshore one. As I say, you could see some of the politics heading in this direction, both Europe, while we were still in Europe, uh, and in the UK. And so that was the bet that we, we took, essentially. You know, some of these coal assets we had, they were old, they were not that efficient, they were polluting as well. So, you know, it, it felt like the right thing to do. Unfortunately, you know, governments moved at a reasonable pace. We've seen energy markets move, and therefore these, these things have become profitable. They've allowed us to, you know, invest more and more, Last November, we, we sort of upped by about 60-70% what we're investing. So we've, we've got our next five-year program, £12.5 billion that we want to invest. And we're, we're, we're sort of coming out of COVID uh, or coming out of the pandemic. You know, we'll, we'll be doubling our CapEx this year versus last year. We've also been able to expand. We've been able to expand internationally. You've seen over in the States, America's got about 20,000 megawatts of offshore wind that they're doing now. They're, you know, they're, they're, they've got enough seabed uh, leased out to, to sort of match the UK. The UK is the world's biggest offshore wind market currently. Why um, is that? <clears throat> We've just committed to it. I think there are a couple of things. There's probably a bit of nimbyism in there. Um, the UK's not got a lot of land mass. So unlike the US, where you can put a lot of wind, wind turbines up the middle of the US, where there's a lot of wind, sort of in Texas and Oklahoma and just further and further north, the UK's got an, an amazing amount of offshore wind possibilities. It's much more expensive to start with, although we've brought those costs down by 60-plus percent. And so incentives from government, clear policy from government, the UK's committed the electricity industry to completely decarbonise by 2035. That's driven people to really, you know, do an awful lot. So we've we've deployed more than anybody else and we're about to deploy even more. So we're, we're the, the one wind farm that um, that Omar talked about, Dogger Bank, um, that's, a, that's about a 13, 14 billion pound uh, investment in one wow. very large wind farm that'll sort of power up to 6 million homes when it's running flat out. So, you know, a lot of this is about investing big money uh, to make a big difference. So you mentioned NIMBYism, not in my backyardism. Sorry. And, yes. and so um, I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, is it different in the UK from other countries or do you see the same sorts of issues? Well, it's just the UK, the, the, property densi- uh, the, the population density is just so high here. There's just a limit to how many places you can build a wind farm. And equally, you get a lot of people whinge about them. So, you know, that, that very large wind farm I talk about, the far end of it's going to be closer to Norway than it is to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long way offshore. It's, it's like 100 kilometers offshore, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so nobody much is going to see it uh, except the seabirds and the, uh, and the fish. And that's the major pushback that you get is... Um well, you've got a lot of work to do uh, on, a, on environmental things. And um, actually, we've done some amazing work uh, on, uh, on bird life with, uh, with Microsoft. We've got a puffin counter. So sort of monitoring the health of puffin populations near wind farms is important. And, and they can do it with AI and technology. So, so that's been amazing. But you, you've got to deal with the environmental issues. We're also big on trying to get a biodiversity net gain by putting more back into the environments where we're building assets, whether they be networks or uh, 
or offshore. Um, so you've got that, and then, yeah, clearly planning consent. If you get lots of people object to, I, I don't want to be able to see that, or I don't, you know, I don't want to hear that, or whatever, then you've got to deal with that. So mm. trying to find solutions for, you know, for society generally so that you can put it in places that doesn't impact them, really, really important. I think, Will, this is one of those themes that we're going to come back over and over and over. It's that for, to drive change, you have to think hard about people and putting people at the center of the change and making it work for them. And I'm sure you also caught um, the point there from Alistair that, you know, the AI also driving change takes care of puffins at the same time, which is very important. Mm. You've, you've talked in the past around the role of technology that helps you actually do that to execute these amazing giant capital projects. And so talk to us a little bit about the role of technology and software uh, in that. So, you know, when, when we come to look at the, the sort of built environment, we think about sustainability. A lot of people think about sustainability that, you know, you probably put David Attenborough up there and you look at those nature programs and whatever. So, so there's that key piece about looking after the species, the biodiversity where you are and all those things. So uh, clearly fantastic success. I suspect building on things like when Microsoft, you know, did the first photographs of snow leopards and, and stuff like that. You've then taken that technology and done it. So rather than sitting somebody on a rock looking at Mac and Mabel and their two chicks and trying to figure out how healthy they are, the AI will do it for you basically and give you a much richer set of data because it's just out there taking pictures and it can identify which birds from their plumage and feathers and whatever, which are which. So Mac and Mabel are both good and the two chicks are still hopping around and all this sort of stuff. We want to take that even further. If, you, if you're going to build more and more offshore wind off the east coast of the, of the UK, you're going to need more bird data. We'll have to build, build bigger turbines to take the turbine tip to 100 foot plus off the um, surface of the water so that the birds can fly underneath the blades so they don't get impacted by them. So that'll, that'll cost more, but that, that's going to be important. And then using technology to uh, identify them, to count numbers, even, even for fish underneath as well. I know we've, you know, we're looking at issues like sand eels at the moment because it, they're important for some of the other species to feed on. All that stuff is super important, and uh, and we've done a lot of work with you guys. There's probably stuff people know about when you when you build a power station now. There'll be fifty thousand sensors in the thing, so that's a lot of data. You know, you, you might think I'm clever, but I can't look at fifty thousand sensors at any one time and figure out what's going. You know, it's like a mixing board gone wild in the music industry. But 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 basically, you take the the AI that companies like Microsoft have, and they can tell you when something's about to go wrong, you should maybe turn it down, you should think about doing some more maintenance and stuff like that. And also we build digital twins with you. So you can, you kind of got a real asset and then you build a twin in, in sort of cyberspace and you can, you can do a lot of work on that twin, maybe even in a destructive way, but you obviously, you don't blow up the main asset. So, you know, huge amounts of things. We're still learning and it's great to be you know, partnering with Microsoft and one or two other people as well to learn what we can do. But digital is just a huge explosion in our industry. And given that it's a newer industry, it's, 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 you've got an opportunity to build in sensors and other things you need right now at the start and to actually get new and exciting things going in there. So that, you know, I, I find that amazing whenever I get a chance to go around. It's obviously been less in the last couple of years, but it keeps moving. That's amazing. I'm sure that when you first got the role of CEO, I don't think you were thinking about becoming a guru of sand eels. No, or, or indeed puffins, but, but you know, they're, they're cool too. That's, that's part, of, part of the job. Okay. So you talked about digital twins. Mm -hmm. So tell our audience a little bit exactly what that is and why it's so cool. And also, what, what's the difference between a digital twin for your use case and what everybody's hooping and hollering about as far as the metaverse 
All right, crikey. Yeah, Omar might have to sort me out on the metaverse. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm fully into that. But, but look, a digital twins where you, you take something that's real and in the physical world and I suppose build it in the metaverse um, or, you know, we'll probably build it on Azure uh, with Microsoft or somebody else, but, you know, Azure with Microsoft. And, and then you can experiment on it and figure stuff out and you can put them in some of the fancy uh, vision lenses and... No, uh, color lens. Yeah, color, uh, exactly. And, and they can go in and go in and, and look around and see and do things and touch things bef- and train almost on the item before they actually get And there. how accurate is the simulation as far as, like, the uh, probability? Pr- pretty amazing, the ones I've seen. I, I've, I've, cli- I've sort of... Um, Climbed towers and, and 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 gone up and done stuff on transmission lines on the back of it and things like that. I've I've not done some of the more heavy engineering stuff, uh, but they're incredibly good at putting you in the space, showing you things, figuring out what you do. They're just really really good at orientating somebody who hasn't been there before. But also, it's just the ability to experiment in a in like a safe environment. You know, like you wouldn't want to go in front of a audience probably and uh, although you probably could because you're pretty talented and just sort of right i'm just going to play you a song and sing you a song you want to go and practice in a studio for you know a day or so and then go out and do it and that's what this sort of stuff allows you to do Mm. uh and uh, i don't know i think the the metaverse is probably quite similar in the sense that everybody's recreating society or, or or a slightly different version of society for them to enjoy or experience there whereas we're doing that but we're doing it to add real value to a real engineering process, I suppose. Now, a, a lot of the chatter about metaverse is consumer-oriented today. So, like, people, gamers can go into a gaming community and have a bunch of games and play with one another, that, that kind of thing. Actually, at Microsoft, we think the industrial metaverse, the kind of thing Alice is talking about, um, is here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, the accuracy, Will, is incredible. So you can firstly put sensors on the physical facility to create a digital version. Yep. You can then suck a load of data out to understand how it's operating and visualize that data in amazingly useful ways in the way Alistair described. And then program errors so that you your team knows how to deal with those errors before those errors actually happen in real life. Exactly. So now we're seeing what they call actuation, where you take that data and you actually feed it back to run the assembly line better or whatever the process facility or, or manufacturing plant might be. So we've got customers today who the, the factory operators are using that technology to actually operate the assembly lines and the plant itself, which mm. is which is an amazing improvement. Wow! I want to ask you about these turbines. So you talked about 100 feet flying off the surface of the water. How big are these blades, and like how's that changed over time? Yes, yeah, so, so that will have changed a lot. We we obviously had a quick word at the start, and I was trying to think back to the maybe the, some of the first turbines I remember uh, installing when you'd have had blades, you know, 25 meters, 30 meters, something like that, wow. which is still quite quite big. But now you're talking over 100 meters. So we're just about to um, install the world's largest turbines at Dogger. They're 108 meters long, um, and so the actual total circumference 220 meters, and but not a long way off a thousand feet at the top of it when the thing's going round. And you get a lot of energy out of those things when you when you make them bigger. That's one turn of that blade will power two houses for a day. One turn. One turn. Once round, that's two houses for a day. And how many times does the the blade go around? Uh, it, well, it'll just keep going. Go, dep- partly no, depends in a how, day. Uh, in a day? Well, in a day, with a whole wind farm, uh, you'll power over 33,000 homes if it was running flat out. Wow. And how many uh, turbines are, are on the, on the uh, farm? 287. So there's a lot of them. So you've got, uh, it's over 6% of the UK's total annual demand will probably be coming off that. So, you know, it's a huge amount. You, you're... It's a, 
sorry, all, if all the turbines are running at once, on average, you'll power about 6 million ho- homes. Wow. The amount of engineering that goes into these things is, is and what's what's phenomenal. What's in the... So as as one blade turns around once, it powers how many homes? Uh, it'll power, uh, So one turn will power two homes for a day. Okay. What's inside of the blade that doing that? Is that magnets? Like yeah, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just a, a generator. So the thing will turn around. It, it's what you have in gas turbines and coal steam turbines. You turn something around, uh, you've got magnets and coils, and they generate a current. So those magnets generate a current in the coils, and that AC current goes off, and it obviously gets stepped up and down through some transformers, but basically gets all the way to your house or your business and, uh, uh, and powers it. Who's the person that invented that system? You, you could go back to like Edison, the light bulb, and Nikola Tesla, and people like this who looked at electromagnetism. But you know, the big companies doing that, a uh, big American company, GE, mm-hmm. uh, and they're actually doing these turbines. So these are the biggest turbines in the world, 14 megawatt turbines. Uh, you've got Vestas, you've got Siemens. So there's three or four big companies in the world who, who manufacture um, uh, both gas plant and, and also a lot, of these, uh, wow. a lot of these turbines. And offshore, you can just keep going bigger. You just rent a bigger boat, you rent a bigger crane, and you can make a much bigger turbine. Onshore, they tend to be maximum about a third of the size of the, of the offshore ones. But offshore, you just do everything on a much bigger scale because everything's on barges and boats um, and just uh, and floats, whereas it's a bit difficult to drive 108 metres around a hill, basically, because the, the, the blades don't bend too easily. So trying to get up on, uh, on land is much more difficult. Do they helicopter it in? Uh, you don't find that many helicopters that can that have got that lifting because these things are these things are heavy. So the so the last one that we did, which is about an eight megawatt turbine, the tower it stands on is a is a four hundred ton lift. The uh, so how you get it? How you get it there? Uh, you you just float it off on a boat. You get a boat with five towers, five nacelles, which have got the stuff in the middle. It's like a two story house, literally. That nacelle that weighs five hundred tons, and then there's three thirty ton blades. Wow. I'm going to change gears here. So we had a lot of headlines in the UK over the winter, Alistair, around uh, clean energy, energy prices, a lot of homes struggling with high energy bills, particularly driven by the rising price of gas. How do you think of politics impacting the need to invest in alternative or renewable energies? That's an interesting one. If you if, if you go back to the US, well, you asked me about the US. You've obviously got big coal reserves there. You've got a lot of shale gas, so that you know that's going to provide you with good cheap energy for a long time, and that's it. That, that's important for vibrant um, economies. Actually, in in the UK, we import a lot of gas. So you know, how do we get less reliance and less dependence on on these very very expensive imports? So that's going to be critical. It makes good business sense because we can clean up the planet to some extent. We get more energy independence as a UK. We're also creating a lot of extra jobs. I can think, you know, that one big wind farm at Dogger, we've created over 2,000 jobs on Teesside with a blade factory. Also, we we, uh, we launched a big investment, 100 million pound plus investment, which will create, you know, 1,000 jobs a year up in the north of Scotland for a tower factory. So there's lots and lots of things um, that we can do. And, and that'll be a critical piece um, to that, back to that piece about, humans essentially we've got to rebuild economy so if people come out of high 
um, high-carbon industries. We, we found about 20% of our employees have come from high-carbon industries, and now they're in a much lower-carbon industry. You've got to take them, train them, and do something very different with them in terms of giving them new skills and jobs. And I think that's really, really important when at the start of this journey we were getting subsidies. Obviously now, with these very high energy prices, a lot of these wind farms are paying money back to the government, basically, on the back of the contracts they've got because the, the wholesale market price is so much higher than the contract price. Wow. And Alistair, like, I want to just talk about you as the leader here because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're the chief executive. You're accountable for pretty much everything the company's doing. And you're caught between you know, national security issues, fuel poverty issues, modern technology issues, you know, what society needs now in the face of this climate crisis. So where do you get your raw motivation from to like drive all this change? I think you find a lot of it with um, people outside the company who some some of these campaigners and then critically is people inside the company who really want to make a difference uh, to the world. You know, the fact that we have these crises out there, but the fact that we can driver, d- deliver genuine solutions, you know, if you think we've we've gone from, you know, 20 years ago, coal had been on the bar or, or been providing power to the UK for over over a century. You know, and in the last few years, we've gone to coal-free hours, coal-free nights, coal-free days, coal-free weeks when coal hasn't run at all. We've closed a lot of those coal. So you can see real difference where we really have replaced those assets and delivered something very different. I love building things, uh, and it's fantastic to be able to, you know, lead a team of people who, who, do, who do some great stuff and make a real difference. Well, um, Alistair... Thanks so much for being with us today. We've really, really enjoyed it. It's fantastic to hear the push you're making on wind for the UK and hopefully beyond. Okay, perfect. No, thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Well, what did you think? Alistair, that dude's a rock star. No, he's a um, really leading us out of the Stone Age, pushing the UK forward with, with the technologies they have towards renewable energies. And so the fact that you have company, government working hand-in-hand to relieve themselves from fossil fuels and new technologies, that's great. But then at the same time, take into account the other issues like wildlife and making sure they use all the technologies to account for you know, some of the bad things that might happen with this technology, like bird life. Yeah, amazing. Hey, like that whole ecosystem conversation and... Mm. He was talking to me earlier about having like these giant suction pumps, 10 meter wide suction pumps that suck these wind towers to the muddy ground, you know, underneath the sea to hold them in to actually avoid drilling. And that's how these giant towers stand up. It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And when you, after you listen to him, are you more optimistic that we can get to net zero for 2050 or uh, how how do you feel? Um, Yeah, I remember it was uh, 2008. I got a call from Al Gore, and Al Gore asked me to do this video for him. So, But to do the video, I had to go to D.C. to see his speech on renewable energy. And hopefully I'll get inspired to make a video on renewable energy. And the song is called Take Our Planet Back. And he put a challenge together, and that was like pushing governments of the world to be, you know, net zero in 10 years. That would have been 2018 if we did that, if if America stepped up to that challenge. And um, obviously we didn't do that. But am I optimistic that we'll get there by 2050? That sounds a little bit more, 
you know, reasonable. We're in 2022 at the moment. Yeah, exactly right. I've got two Gen Zs at home who are very focused on making sure that people like their dad uh, do the right thing. So how do we avoid like this don't look up scenario, like this whole business where society just doesn't take stuff seriously? You're, you're an amazing communicator, Will. So how do we communicate better? Our planet and our environment and wildlife, um, our life, we can't sustain the way that we are going at the moment, not only just on, you know, resources and fuel, but just how we regurgitate information, how we inspire one another, how we, you know, what we what we prioritize. Energy. 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 Energy.